0: Welcome to Platypod, the official podcast of the Committee for the Anthropology of Science, Technology and Computing. Here, we host dialogues and conversations about the theories, tools and social interactions that explore questions at the intersection of anthropology and science and technology studies. This bonus content is a reading from Platypus, the Castag blog. Enjoy! Uncovering ethnography and creative practice research with machines by Oliver Baum. This blog post comes out of a discussion with Ritwick Banerjee about the hidden role of ethnography in the work involved in creating new experimental systems for music improvisation. Ritwick put it to me that it seems that a lot of work involves a kind of implied ethnography. That is, it's clear that the author, designer, has lots of personal experience with the domain they're designing for, and yet the technical documentation of such systems makes scant mention of it. This was a welcome invitation to reflect on my past practice since I had once been a student of social anthropology and am now, as an associate professor 25 years on, re-engaging with ethnography as a methodology. Have I been implicitly using ethnography all along and could or should this component have been more explicit in the presentation of my work in an academic context? I will begin with some scene setting. It is 2010 and I'm working with fellow members of the improvising collective Not Applicable, Sam Britton on computer, Lotta Almeyer on bass clarinet, and Tom Arthur's On Trumpet to create an improvised performance using what I tended then to call live algorithms. The performance was later documented in the record long division on the not applicable label. We had been invited by a producer friend at the North Sea Jazz Festival to create this experimental content for a one-off show. This was philosophically motivated work at the heart of which was the idea of the software doing things autonomously, making meaningful meaningful actions in an improvised context without someone directly, directly operating it. Achieving this involved in part the smart use of complex evolved systems and in part our own informed aesthetic manipulation of the resulting system. A description of the system and design process can be found in my paper from 2011. The the former, the system development, through systematic experimentation with algorithms, aspired to simulate all of the richness of expression and interaction that occurs between two improvisers. My practice is grounded far more in artificial life than artificial intelligence and i like to think of my musical systems as more amoeba-like or insect-like than simulating the smarts of any recent human composer of course this richness of expression was not achieved in any complete sense instead it resulted in a curious digital object that gave some sense that gave some sense of being a complex system that musical improvisers m- musical improvisers will be interested in playing with though its blend of unpredict through its blend of unpredictability and responsiveness in a paper with academic collaborators Alice Eldridge and John McCormack in 2009, we discussed how these types of software behaviours needed a new category. They were object-like, they were not humans or animals or artificial intelligences, they were, they were artefacts under our direct authorial control, but they also felt a bit lifelike. We felt that they deserved some attribution of agency beyond those of Latorian objects, books and doors and the like, that still acted in social realms, but not with the wiggly zeal of the musical machines we had constructed. The term we gave them was behavioural objects. We also distinguished between performative and mimetic agency, the former being agency enacted in the moment of performance, where the software operates in the absence of a human controller, the latter being agency in the actor network theory sense, enacted over the much longer period of creative development leading up to performance, where the software is one of many materials in a socio-technical system. I also mentioned above the additional work of the artist in aesthetic manipulation bolted onto these imperfect, messy, complex systems. Philosophically, like other live algorithm artists of the time, I saw myself as attempting to offload some part of the creative and aesthetic decision-making to this system itself, to edge oneself out of the process, leaving the system with the performative agency, but at the same time taking charge of the result as the composer of this work as a system. Studying the creative work of working with algorithms in this way became an increasing focus in design, using creative reflective practice to document the interplay between developing an algorithm and refining the artistic outcomes that use that algorithm. Coming back to Rickwick's question, I am led to revisit the plethora of methodologies I've encountered in over 10 years of working in this field. In a book chapter published last year, I traced how music and AI work had transitioned from more of a computational philosophical perspective. What would it mean to make a computer that could create music? And how do we do it to a design perspective? How do we make usable tools to support people making music? And is now in tradition to more seriously embracing a sociological perspective, i.e. understanding creative tools, not only in a creative practice niche or or as a design problem, but in terms of how they are adopted and may transform creative practice in communities of practice. This latest transition is well underway, but is not mature. The competing concerns of these various interdisciplines have not been jostled into a neat order. Note that there is a long-standing tradition of anthropological perspectives in creative technological music practice, such as the work of Simon Waters, but that there is, separate to this, a gradual awakening, coming from the direction of more computer science-oriented creative work. Methodological standpoints don't just fuse together or superimpose into a body of work like this in a body of work like this. They are in conflict for discursive space, for words on a page or for time, for research time and attention, research awareness, uh, what we have the time to read and understand and what debates we participate in. It is not straightforward to do justice to the multiple competing concerns of creating algorithms, experimenting, experimenting artistically, understanding and solving design problems and simultaneously grappling with underlying cultural issues. We have to pick a methodological focus critical considering the relationship between this work and ethnography then is what space is given to doing ethnography. My work and that of my colleagues making creative music algorithms may have been ethnographically informed and involved thinking about people and their cultures of creative practice but it was not carried out in an ethnographic way. Time wasn't spent assuming an ethnographic stance nor analysing the role of class, socio-economic background, gender, race or ethnicity and the work was embedded in a cultural milieu of electroacoustic-free improvisation, particularly based in London's experimental music scene, and didn't devote time to looking outside of it. Indeed, Ritwick's own work brought quite a different perspective to this live algorithms community by centering questions of ethnography and and through the original idea of using music technology experimentation to shine a light on human behaviour. My live algorithms work like others took an artist developer stance. And in the early 2010s, I was perhaps typical of artist developers exploring new creative technologies in that I didn't yet associate with a design perspective either. This changed gradually over the 2010s as design thinking rose in prominence. And personally for me, finding myself situated in a design faculty from 2011. The user-centered designer is very different from the creative artist making things with technology. Artists position themselves directly in what they are doing whereas designers seek greater objectivity. To be sure, both overlap in their concerns. And in fact, the artist programmer is often a hybrid innovator, making software for their own immediate use. And then in addition, potentially as tools for third parties. One might broadly sketch out a spectrum then and extend it to include the ethnographer. It might look something like this. To begin with artistry, where you assume creative direction of authorship of work, engage with design issues, seek objectivity by being honest in reflection. The artist programmer may also study their creations both via the tools of the practice-based researcher and of computer science, such as quantitative and qualitative tests of system behaviour. In the middle of the spectrum lies design, where you assume a user-centred perspective informed by ethnography, but still um, you have to make something, thus assuming creative licence. As above, the artist may be a designer, putting themselves as the first guinea pig user, but there is a tension here with the principle of good design to emphasize with users who are different to oneself. And then at the other end of the spectrum is ethnography. The primary goal is to understand human cultural behavior as it emerges in particular spatio-temporal contexts, not complicated by ulterior goals, such as to build things. This may inform design, but mustn't be confused with the work of design. These descriptions, directly consider how the artist, programmer, and designer overlap as the former seeks to understand software's use and potential in other people's hands as well as their own. They may still position themselves at the centre of the software's use via the use of practice-led research, reflection on their own creative practice and technology. This perhaps plays into Barry, Bourne, uh, and Wesikkalnis' notion of a subordination service relationship between methodologies, design in service of creative practice. Over recent years, I've taken to flexibly situating myself across creative practice and design, diversifying the methods I use in order to address different research questions. This has been most pronounced in a recent collaborative project where, a collaborative, te- where collaborative teams move between practice-based and design research processes. But in this early work, my role as artist, doing the key aesthetic manipulation and putting my name on the work, Marked clear boundary from the work of design. During this time, I have been guided by the clarity of a paper by my PhD peer Marcus Pierce and colleagues, uh, 2002, which reminds me, which reminds researchers to prise apart their methodological practices based on their project aims. The overlap between designer and ethnographer too occupies an entire academic cohort, following thinkers like, like Lucy Suchman and Paul Darish. Ethnography is considered part of a designer's toolkit although the ethnographic inclinations of designers vary considerably according to the trade-offs found in the list above. If we trust in the spectrum, we may claim that the artist programmer has too much of a stretch to reach the world of the ethnographer. Methodologically, there is too much to take into account. But developing a three-way interaction between reflective creative practice design and ethnography should should be explored more thoroughly. Ritwick's own work uses systems developed as an artist technologist as a probe to explore human behavior. In conjunction with asking how can I make the system better, like many of us, he adds, what does the system show us about the world? In my own work, this was indirectly manifest, and perhaps this is how I can best answer Rick Wick's question in the personal and genre relationships that formed with specific instrumental musicians as I conducted this work. The project peaked in its collaboration with clarinetist Francois Huell, who deeply studied the system's behaviours. <clears throat> but above all it was a shared understanding of free improvised electronic electroacoustic music that was essential to the system working. An anecdote, an anecdote helps frame this ethnographically. In 2012 <clears throat> I was demoing some other work of mine on the ABC science show Catalyst. We had wrapped up filming and I took the pre- I talked to the presenter about my system for live improvisation. He got excited and asked to jam with it the, on his guitar but it became rapidly apparent that the experimental bleeps and drones my system started making were only jarring noise to him. He was expecting something more like an accompaniment system. And I was reminded that free improvised music is a narrow scene, impenetrable to many. Recognize our, recognizing our Bourdieuian boundaries, we politely agreed to look no further. Thanks for tuning in. If you have any comments and feedback, feel free to share them with us on the blog. You can find the link to the post in the description of the episode.